0: This week on Grape Encounters Radio. I can't tell you how many times I've read somebody uh,
1: say something like, so if you're having a salad and you want to have wine with it, to counteract the acid, you have to serve something sweet. Oh, my God, that'll make the wine taste three times as sweet. You have to serve something acid. As you said, fire with fire. Wow. Hey, are you going to use that? Uh, Can I? Yeah. yeah, Give me permission on the air right here,
2: right now. Yeah, but, but can you at least once give me credit for it?
3: grape crush me some ice
0: skin me a peach save the fuzz for my pillow
2: and a great big welcome to grape encounters radio today i'm so pleased to present a true superstar from the world of food and wine My very special guest today has hosted approximately 2,500 shows on Food Network television. As a journalist, he has written for Gourmet Magazine, The New York Times, Food & Wine Bon Appetit, Harper's Bazaar, Wine Spectator, The Huffington Post, Forbes, and many more. Author of numerous books, including the James Beard Award winner It's All American Food, my totally mesmerizing and insightful guest David Rosengarten also uses his food and wine expertise to select wines for Golden Ram imports and I couldn't be more excited to spend most of today's show talking food and wine with a true master. David Rosengarten, welcome to Grave Encounters radio been looking forward to this for a long time glad to have you I
1: have been looking forward to it, David So where are
2: you at right now you're in New York City
1: I am in New York yes. I'm actually in the beautiful Hudson Valley at the moment. So
2: tell me how much travel you do, because I got a chance to look at your newsletters, and it seems to me like you're on the go just about all the time.
1: Yeah, well, I I keep up the the schedule I've had for years as a food, wine, and travel writer. But then this new thing happened a couple of years ago. I started to import wines. I work for a company called Golden Ram. And I've been the chief chooser and curator, so guess what that requires? Wine trips, mostly to Europe. Well, you know, they they could send the bottles to you. They could, I suppose. Yeah,
2: I think it's probably better to put the wines in
1: perspective, however. Yeah, because we're going to talk about perception later, and I perceive them better when I'm in Europe.
2: (laughs) Okay, so before we jump into our topics for the day, I did want to ask you about the beginning of your career, because you kind of did what I did, except in reverse. And you started out, I guess you decided to teach, and it was all about theater, and then made a hard turn in another direction. How'd that happen?
1: Yeah, well, this Short story of the long story is that I grew up in a very, very foodie family, and this was, you know, before there were many foodies, but my dad was obsessed with it, so much so that he took a couple years to go into the restaurant business, though his main business was garment business in New York, but he opened a restaurant when I was about 12.
2: He was in the garment business and the the restaurant business.
1: Well, for a couple years. So so
2: he could have been the original French Laundry.
1: (laughs) That's pretty funny. So uh, I watched them for two or three years slave away at this restaurant, which ultimately failed. The investors pulled out. And I said to myself, whoa, not for me. I'm going to spend my life loving food, not slaving away in a restaurant. So my dad was also a lover of the arts, and I became very fond of the theater. And I went on to get a doctorate in theater and then be a college professor in theater. But while I was a college professor in a town in upstate New York, I started to teach cooking classes and wine classes in downtown. This is Saratoga Springs, New York, and said, oh, my God, I love this. So I was able to make the transition from theater professor to food and wine guy. <laughs> and yeah, but, you know, but, you,
2: but you end up uh, spending a great deal of your time doing television work and public appearances what have you. So I'm guessing everything that you learned from the theater perspective translated very well into what you're doing today.
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to do the very first on the Food Network and I always said at that time what I know about performance is much more beneficial to me than what I know about food
2: (laughs) Besides I think food and wine has a great deal of theater involved in it that's something we're going to talk about in just a second but it doesn't work to just put a plate of food out or just sip a glass of wine it has to be in some kind of context and I think that's what you focus on a great deal am I right?
1: Yeah absolutely well I, I think the context changes a lot of things you know even if the context is very simple. You know, even if you're just on a beach on a blanket and the waves are pounding, you know, you, you might go, oh, this is the perfect setting for my chicken salad or whatever. You know, it, it helps. One
2: of my favorite things to talk about is how people will go into a tasting room. They'll spend a whole weekend wine tasting and they'll go from tasting room to tasting room and they'll end up walking off with a case of this and a half a case of that. They get home and they open the case up under the fluorescent lights in the kitchen after they've had a fight with the spouse after they've had a terrible day after, you know, listening to the kids scream for, you know, two hours, and they go, wait a second, this wine doesn't taste as good as it did. You know, somebody pulled a switcheroo on us, and it's all about the difference between drinking that wine in a perfectly manicured tasting room versus a setting that really doesn't complement the wine.
1: I think some people mistakenly believe that a bottle of wine has a certain fixed reality to it, that, you know, there is that wine, and that's what it is. That's kind of the, the thinking that allowed various wine critics to start doing the 100-point scale. You know, Parker gives it a 93, and a guy goes into the wine shop and says, uh, yeah, I want that wine that Parker gave a 93. And the you know the, the, the shop owner, with whom the customer might have dealt for years, says, uh, well, you know, I know your taste, and I know your life, and I think you'd like this wine better, this one. And the guy says, well, what did Parker give it? Well, I gave it a 92. No! I want the 93. You know, as if there's some eternal reality in a bottle of wine. There's not. It all depends on you, where you are, how you feel. They taste different all the time.
2: And how many times have you enjoyed a bottle of wine, come back to that bottle of wine, and it tastes completely different? Right. And don't give up on the wine. Just set it aside and wait till you're in the right mood. I guess the hard part is knowing what the right mood is for the wine. How do you deal with that?
1: Well, I mean, that. That is a little bit hit and miss, I suppose. If it's, you know, let's say it's a, it's a, um, Burgundy is often thought of as a very romantic kind of wine. And there's a particular Burgundy, in fact, that's called Les amoureuses The Lover's. So, you know, you pick out that Burgundy, and you pick it out for a very romantic dinner, let's say it's for a Valentine's Day dinner, and you serve aphrodisiac kind of foods, and the music is just right, and the lighting is just right. You know, like, that's one way you can influence how that wine's going to taste. I'd be very surprised if you open that bottle of uh, Les Amel, and go, this is crap! <laughs> I mean, you know, that probably exactly. won't happen. But other than that, I mean, it's kind of it's hit and miss. You know, like, um, we, we could try to control things. But like the rest of life, you never really can.
4: You know,
2: I had a visit about two months ago with Michael Mandavi, And mm. one of the things that he said that I found very interesting was that if a layperson loves a bottle of wine, that it's pretty likely that the wine experts will like it too. Do you agree with that? Uh and let's rule let's rule out white zin for a second. And, okay. But, but, I mean, you're talking about, you know, generally good wines, I think there's some truth to that, that wines can be very prima facie, that they can stand on their own merits, but we have the control over making the wine a lot better.
1: You know, not to disagree with Michael, who certainly knows, you know, what sells a, a lot better than I do, but I think it kind of depends on the kind of wine we're talking about. So let's say, for example... As you may know, and I'm not sure if this is true, you're based in California, and I'm not sure if this is true among California palates, but most of the upper and upper echelon palates that I know around the world are crazy about German wine. Um, And and a lot of these wines are dry, but some of them have a little sweetness. And, you know, a man like Hugh Johnson in England, you know, the most famous wine writer in the world, his passion is Riesling. And he doesn't care whether it's dry or a little off dry or a little sweet, but there are a lot of American consumers who think that there's something wrong with sweet, which is a very odd thing because when it comes to dessert, they never think there's something wrong with sweet. (laughs) But when it comes to wine, it's almost like a little bit of self doubt or something. They feel like I have to show the world that I understand that a good wine is a dry wine. But it's not true. And it's not that way for most people in the world. So I would say, just to answer the Michael Mondavi question, there are some people who are the average consumer who would look at a let's say a german cabinet wine and say oh i don't like that it's sweet whereas you johnson and a bunch of other wine writers would go that is gorgeous
2: well you know the interesting thing about german wines is that the sweeter it gets the more expensive it gets too for the most part yeah you know which is very counterintuitive to americans
1: right and Sort of following that, over the years, the only German wines that our major wine publications wrote about were the most expensive, thinking, oh, those are probably the best. So you have, you know, 96 points for a auslese 97 points for trocken auslese but that's all they wrote about, it, and it's one of the factors that made Americans continue to think that German wines must be sweet, but the reality is you know, a dry German wine at $16 a bottle, that can be a great wine also. The difference in the pricing is pretty much the, um, the, the details of production. Yeah, exactly. It's very expensive to risk leaving the grapes Out to become that ripe, you lose a hell of a lot of grapes.
2: All right, so David, we're going to get a chance to try some of the wines that have your name on it. That is the ultimate thrill, and you didn't even have to make it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's right. Just had to find it. Uh, We've got
2: on the line television personality, cookbook author, wine curator, David Rosengarten. David, stay with me. We'll be back with more grape encounters.
0: Thank you. Right after this. While you're letting the wine breathe, Facebook us at facebook.com forward slash Grape Encounters Radio. More Grape Encounters next.
3: For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com.
2: Recently, I discovered a winery whose wines literally rock my world. I was so excited about them, I've relentlessly shared them with wine journalists, renowned sommeliers, and of course, wine enthusiasts. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one who thinks they're magical. They're from the beautiful Cardella Winery in Mendota, California. A tremendously fertile Central Valley location not known for fine wine production. Nonetheless, Cardella's remarkable Barbera, Sangiovese, Ruby Cabernet, and other varietals are absolutely world-class. Now, I take the endorsement of wines very seriously, and in seven years, I've endorsed less than five. Every single Cardella wine that I've tasted is a grand slam, home run, and ridiculously inexpensive. Cardella wines are available at their tasting room and online, provided they can be legally shipped to your state. So go to CardellaWinery.com, buy them, drink them, and share them. Nestled between world-class Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo wine countries, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the humble heart of the Central Coast. With access to endless wine country adventures, including wine and olive oil tasting tours, artisan farm experiences, food, wine, and cultural events, historic Atascadero's cozy and oh so friendly atmosphere make it the perfect home base for Central Coast tourists. Discover more about the heart of the Central Coast at visitatascadero.com.
0: And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues. I can almost taste his baby and sweet well. All
2: right, we are back with probably one of the most high-profile, nah, we're just going to call him the most high-profile food television personality, cookbook author, and all-around wine and foodie of all time. David Rosengarten. How's just that? I just
1: you didn't say high maintenance. Okay. I, I'm all right I just,
2: it. I just made you the grand poobah of food. And yeah, you
1: did. You're uh, lying, but thank you.
2: All right. Well, how many episodes on, is that, this must be a misprint, 2,500 episodes on the food network.
1: Believe it or not, it's true <laughs> because they hired me to do a daily interview talk show about food. That was originally called food news and views. And I did it <laughs> five nights a week for about seven years. So that really adds up. That was about, I don't know, something like 1,500 shows. That goes very quickly, yeah. Then I did 500 cooking shows. They were called Taste, and then various other things they asked me to do. So, yeah, it added up. I know, it's crazy.
2: So how exhausting is that?
1: Well... Wasn't so bad. I was a little bit younger, and um, you know, TV gets you the adrenaline involved in doing TV is incredible. Just since you're asking about exhaustion, you might be interested in this little thing that happened uh, when I was uh, doing the the cooking shows. They concentrate them all like into a couple of weeks, and every day you do five. You get there at six in the morning, and then you bang out five cooking shows. But me, I was also doing this live talk show at the end of the day that was airing about six o'clock. So I'd have to do the five cooking shows, run into the dressing room, get freshened up, and come back and do an hour of live TV. Oh, Lord. That was exhausting. (laughs)
2: All right. So you sent me some wine here, and I'm completely baffled by the instructions I got. I've got two bottles of wine here. Yeah. I was also told to have some lettuce and vinegar and a cookie available.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? I'd really love to talk to you about today, David, since I heard that you wanted to talk about perception of wine. I think it makes all the difference in the world, whether you drink the wine by itself or whether you drink it with some food, I just want to show you a couple of basic food wine matching tricks that you probably already know. But if you would, for example, just give a taste to that 2014 Philippe Goulet, that's the name of the producer, and the wine is a Petit Chablis.
2: Now, I'm pouring this with my Corvin by the way, because I figured any wine that came from you had to be great, and I don't want to waste it.
1: Oh, uh, that's nice of you. I hope it gives you many days, weeks, months of pleasure. Well, it,
2: if it makes it pass tomorrow, that would be yeah. amazing. Okay, of, so so both I
1: of these I have wines you have our um, Golden Ram Imports. I choose and curate wines for them. So most people are familiar with uh, Chablis, but we're talking about the real Chablis that comes from Chablis, France. So Chablis, and Chablis with a capital C. With a capital C. A lot, a lot of people don't know
2: that. You know that the capital C means everything.
1: Yeah, but of course there are probably some labels in California that also put a capital C. Oh, were you know? they
2: allowed to do that? I thought they weren't.
1: I have to say something very funny as a little sidebar. There was a producer in Chablis, which is you know a town and, and a region in France, who was really pissed off that in California they dared to put the name Chablis on their bottles of jug wine, let's say from the Central Valley. So this guy, his name was William Fev, he decided to get his revenge one year, and of course Chablis, real Chablis is made from Chardonnay. So he created a label <laughs> that he tried to market. It. it was called Le Chardonnay du Napa Valley. Ah! <laughs> And, of course, it was made in Chablis, but he was just trying to that get is, revenge.
2: That is awesome. Was it, He wasn't successful, I take it.
1: No, no. It ended up being just a little joke that he circulated among his friends.
2: Uh, that is awesome. All right. So I've got my Chablis poured. So what do I do next?
1: All righty. Well, uh, I just wanted to say that Chablis, one of the reasons I, I love Chablis and I urged Golden Ram to import it, is that, to me, a great Chablis is probably the greatest expression of <laughs> Chardonnay in the world. Now, at this level, if the label says Chablis, it's just a village wine, not a great wine. If it says Petit Chablis, if it's a good one, again, it's just a village kind of wine, not a great one. But what I like about this wine, I'm anxious to see what you think, it's got the classic Chablis character. It's a little stony. It's a little minerally. It's very lemony, acid, relatively low in alcohol. It's crisp white wine is great wine for oysters so give it a taste
2: David. I am loving it over here oh, good. <laughs> good. Loving, loving it and immediately I know this is a food wine but that's just me so how does somebody who is not quite as familiar with pairing food and wine as well nobody's as familiar as you are but how does somebody know immediately whether they need to get some food in their mouth with this wine
1: is there a rule of thumb that you use um, most of the wines are the world are made for food. You know, we do something in America that's viewed as quite odd by the rest of the world. I mean, I understand that I do it, but we Americans like to have a glass of red wine by itself. Yeah, there, There's no region in the world where they do that. Maybe a glass of white wine, maybe a glass of rosé, but we Americans really like our wine as cocktail. And that in the rest of the world is heresy. In the rest of the world, for the most part, wine is for food. So I would say whenever you open a bottle of wine, do try to figure out, out, you know, what's the best food to go with it. Now, one rule, and since we are talking today about perception, here's something I want you to do right now. Okay. Keep in mind that if a wine is acid, and this wine you just tasted should seem quite acid. Very acid. Yeah. A way to affect that and affect your perception of it is to taste a food that's acid. So I have asked you to take a leaf of lettuce and put some vinegar on it. Oh, I hope it's not balsamic vinegar, is it, by any chance? No. Oh, good, 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 because that's sweet, and that brings up other problems. But if you had some red wine vinegar, and you put it on the lettuce leaf, I'd ask you to taste that, give it a good douse with the vinegar. And, David, I'm betting that the Chablis is going to taste less acid after you've had the vinegar. You
2: know what? It, It is absolutely crazy how that acidity just dropped off the planet
1: exactly
2: amazing
1: i'm so glad you confirmed that that's great yeah
2: uh, yeah it's, it's amazing because when i first took a sip of it i went wow you know this is not a glass of wine that i would just sit and drink on its own but i know it's a great wine and you take that little bit of vinegar and lettuce and it just completely completely turns the wine 180
1: so now, and all your listeners know, what kind of wine to serve with salad. People classically go, oh, you can't drink wine with salad. Well, that's Yeah, if you're drinking a 1945 Chateau Margaux, I wouldn't have it with a salad because it's going to affect this great balanced wine, but if your wine is a little acid, have it with a salad. It'll make the wine taste richer and rounder and less acid.
2: Because especially, you know, when you're talking vinegar and wine, that can be very dangerous, depending upon what the wine is that you're drinking. Yeah, you can, and re- it can is, really
1: backfire on you, right? That's right. If the wine is perfectly balanced to begin with, you don't want to mess with that. Yeah, <laughs> but if exactly. the wine, you know, a little acid and the food is a little acid, but of course there's one other way to use acid wine also, well, a couple ways acid also works well with salt. So if you've got salty food, the acid tends to taste very refreshing. And a sort of subset of that is the oysters we were talking about before. Oysters are briny, oysters are salty, and the acid in the wine acts as a kind of cut through the salty food. It's well, I, t- I, I,
2: I took the liberty of dishing myself up a great big plate of oysters on a half shell here. So uh, we're <laughs> going to take a, a break and then I'm enough. Now I don't have any oysters oh, here. Oh, you you fooled me. <laughs> but would, would you have been proud of me if I really did have oysters here right now?
1: I would have been a member of your fan club, but I am anyway.
2: Okay, great. Hey, listen, David Rosengarten, hang on for just a second. We are going to take a quickie break. we got another bottle of wine here, and I guess I'm having dessert with it, right? Yep, that's the idea. All right, so wine and cookies when we come back with David Rosengarten here on Grape Encounters Radio. Recently, I discovered a winery whose wines literally rock my world. I was so excited about them, I've relentlessly shared them with wine journalists, renowned sommeliers, and, of course, wine enthusiasts. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one who thinks they're magical. They're from the beautiful Cardella Winery in Mendota, California, a tremendously fertile Central Valley location not known for fine wine production. Nonetheless, Cardella's Remarkable, Barbera, Sangiovese, Ruby Cabernet, and other varietals are absolutely world-class. Now, I take the endorsement of wines very seriously, and in seven years, I've endorsed less than five. Every single Cardella wine that I've tasted is a grand slam, home run, and ridiculously inexpensive. Cardella wines are available at their tasting room and online, provided they can be legally shipped to your state. So go to CardellaWinery.com. Buy them, drink them, and share them.
3: For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com.
2: As a lifetime wine lover, I think I own practically every conceivable wine gizmo and gadget. Now I've put together a collection of some of my very favorite things so that you can take your wine obsession to the next level, just like me. From functional to pure fun, check out my favorite things by clicking the store banner at GrapeEncounters.com. That's Grape Encounters,
0: like Close Encounters, Money may not buy happiness, but it will buy you some very good wine. And if that doesn't make you happy, you need to be listening to a self-help show, not Grape Encounters Radio. Grape Encounters Radio continues. Listen to me, butterfly, there's only
2: so much wine. with Grape Encounters Radio. Hey, always a great day when I get to drink wine and eat food in the studio. I remember when I worked at a radio station, they said, no wine or food in the studio. They were afraid <laughs> I was going to spill it in the console. But one person who certainly would advocate for broadcasting with a glass of wine in your hand david rosengarten oh my gosh first of all i want to say this david your newsletter i don't want to forget to tell people to subscribe to your newsletter i think you have the number one food is it food and wine newsletter or just food in general newsletter
1: in the world you're a great guy thank you but yes it's food and wine or wine and food it's really about both things Okay. For example, the current issue has a lead story on what to drink with cheese. And it's a very difficult subject. I did something like 800 tastes. To arrive at my conclusions, but it's a lot about other things as well. It's other beverages, believe it or not, that do very well.
2: And I guess the conventional wisdom about wine and cheese pairing seems to be really evolving these days. And people are really rethinking that. And all of the old literature on what to pair with cheeses, it seems to me like we're definitely rewriting those rules.
1: There's an old romance about wine and cheese, how easy they are together, but it's not true. It's not true that it's easy to find a great match. And a romance about, oh, you've got some of your shamble musigny left over your red Burgundy, have it with the Apoise, have it with the Camembert. Those are tricky, man. I mean, a lot of people in the trenches now believe that red wine doesn't go so easily with cheese. White wine, even off-dry white wine, is an easier match in general.
2: Well, okay, but I've got a lot of listeners out there, they're going, you know what, I don't want to, well, I was going to say, they're going to say, I don't want to go through 800 wines and cheeses. To figure out how to pair it, course. but then I, I rethought that and realized that <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, they do want to do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but oh, that's true. It's not. Yeah, it's not like it's hard work. Let's talk about this Riesling here. Tell me about the wine, and I got to open my cookies in a little packet here.
1: Yeah, but make sure you taste the wine before you. Well, taste, I'm not so going to.
2: No, I know that. Yeah. No?
1: yeah. So um, because of course the whole point, as we both well know, is that the cookies are going to affect your perception of the wine. <laughs> as we said before, David, a lot of people are, you know, and a lot of Americans kind of have this thing about sweet wine. Like, oh, it's not sophisticated to drink sweet wine. It's bad if it's sweet. It's just not true. Some of the best wines in the world are sweet, and some of the best wine experts in the world love wine that, you know, they can love it dry. They can love it a little sweet. They can love it very sweet. It just all depends on the wine. So this particular wine that you've got right there happens to have some age on it, which is great for German Riesling. As you can see, it's 15 years old. Wow. You know Uh, what?
2: I didn't even look down at the date on this wine yeah i think i'm dyslexic and i thought it was a 2010
1: <laughs> right it's but it not is a fact, 2001. 2001 yes and german wine ages magnificently if you're looking at it in the glass it probably doesn't even look that old for a white wine no and yeah.
2: not at all in fact i gotta be honest with you i just snuck in a sip i figured yeah. you know what he's not looking i'm just <laughs> sipping the wine this wine's delicious
1: oh thank you that's the whole thing about Riesling. It's just delicious. Forget about dry, sweet. It's just delicious. So, this producer, Tony Yost, a very traditional producer, mm. right on the Rhine in a little area called the Mittelrhein. But this particular vineyard, it's the Wallufer Walkenberg. It's actually across the river in the region known as the Rheingau, perhaps the most famous region in Germany. It's a Riesling, it's a cabinet and that means that the grapes were picked fairly ripe, but we can tell from the label that the winemaker left a little bit of sugar in the wine, just a little bit of sugar. So tell us what you perceive about the sweetness of this wine.
2: Oh, I think it's deceptive because even though I know there's a little bit of sugar in there, the perception is that it's actually sweeter than it probably really is. And I I think sometimes that people mistake fruit for sugar and vice versa. Absolutely.
1: Yep. Yeah. And Cause, you know, sometimes you give somebody a glass of wine and say, hey, what does that smell like? They go, it smells sweet. Well, sweetness doesn't smell. Does it, you know, Open your box of Domino Sugar. Smell it. Do you smell anything? No. Yeah. They're saying it smells fruity because fruit is sweet.
2: Oh, yeah, exactly. All right. And I think that's a nice combination. What's amazing to me about this wine is that it's 15 years old and it's pretty pristine. Why does this Riesling hold up so well at that age?
1: Riesling is pretty pretty resistant. As it ages, rather than going towards oxidation, which, which would make it smell like sherry, it goes more towards this thing that the Brits call petrol. <laughs> it yeah, takes exactly. on the mineral. Do you get it? Do you get oh. it in that wine? It's like, get oh, it. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, almost... exactly, yeah.
2: And people listen to us saying petrol and go oh that sounds terrible I would oh, right. not drink gasoline right but once you acquire a taste for that and you understand that it's okay and it's part of the whole complexion of that wine then you start really craving it and loving it okay speaking Absolutely. of craving and loving I have a mrs. Fields cookie here and not chocolate chip by the way all okay right? I'm not telling you what I picked out okay but go ahead I, I'm gonna can I take my taste now yeah a little hey. sip of the wine right
1: okay just to make sure you remember how sweet it is mm-hmm. or now I
2: am I'm, I'm taking a sip of milk now oh, Oh, no,
1: I'm not. No, 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 right. no, no. Mm. Then, then taste the cookie. Then go right back to the wine and tell me if the sweetness perception changes.
2: All right, hang on a second. Here we go. Yeah.
1: Yes. Do it again yes. if you have to.
2: Yes, definitely. And I hope I'm not getting this wrong because <laughs> I think the sweetness mellowed out a lot.
1: Exactly. It tastes less sweet when you
2: have it next to something sweet. Actually, I'm eating an oatmeal raisin cookie.
1: Oh, okay. That should do
2: it. Yeah. It yeah. That definitely yeah. did it. But that might have not been the best choice of cookies. But my instructions from your people did not specify the cookie. No. yeah, I just
1: you know, said just, just make it on the sweet side, you know. But anyway, the way that you can use this information, just like things that are acid makes acid wine taste less acid, things that are sweet make sweet wine taste less sweet. So let's say I'm in a restaurant, right, and they're, they're serving me a grilled swordfish, and I'm having a California Chardonnay with it. And the California Chardonnay strikes me as having a little bit too much residual sugar. It's a little on the sweet side. If I ask the waiter to bring me some kind of salsa that has fruit in it, like bring me a pineapple salsa whatever, and I put it on the swordfish, the wine tastes less sweet, more dry, in fact, more complex and interesting.
2: Wait, I've just had an epiphany, thanks to you. (laughs) Okay. You fight fire with fire. Exactly. That's I it. I never
1: thought of that, but that's it. Yeah. You
2: fight fire with fire. If it's sweet and you want to reduce the sweetness, have something sweet. If it's acidic, then have something that's got a little acid to it, etc.
1: And it's so simple. And, you know, so how many is, people you know, get it wrong over a, the years? You and I have both looked at, you know, the classic prescriptions for wine with food. I can't tell you how many times I've read somebody uh, say something like, so if you're having a salad and you want to have wine with it, to counteract the acid, you have to serve something sweet. Oh, my God. That'll make the wine taste three times as sweet. You have to serve something acid. As you said, fire with fire.
2: Wow. Hey, are you going to use that? Uh, Can I? Yeah. yeah, Give me permission on the air
1: right here, right now. Yeah,
2: but but can you at least once give me credit for it?
1: All right. right. Every time I mention it, somewhere in that word cluster, I'll mention your name. Send me
2: 20 cents each time (laughs) you use it. Okay. Okay. Hey, David, we were going to do this whole thing on perception, and we ran out of time because we
1: got a little too crazy with the wine and food. Yeah. Well, it's only your perception that we've run out of time. No, just kidding. We have, in fact.
2: Well, let's just say this simply, because I don't want to promise listeners something and then not deliver. Yep. The whole idea is it all is intertwined with what we just did with the food, that everything matters, right? Everything. And context matters. And so what you eat matters, what you listen to music-wise matters, and we are going to come back and talk about that, okay? Can you promise me that you will come back at some point and um, and we'll we'll talk about
1: that? We'll live for another day.
2: because. I actually have here some music that you picked out for me to play on the air, but we'll do that the next time. But okay. everything matters. The colors in the room, the company you keep, the smells in the room, boy, that makes a big difference. So I think we've learned a valuable lesson here today, even though we didn't talk about that part of it.
1: David, let me leave you with a quick one. Okay. The glass you use, of course. Now, I've done this exercise. I've taken eight glasses that are very different from each other, and I've poured out of one bottle of wine, the same wine into the eight glasses, and then Presented them blind to people and said, What do you think are these uh, eight different wines?
4: Wow. And they, they go
1: like, well, the one in the first glass is blah, blah, The one in the second glass is more of a, maybe it's more from a southern place, blah, blah, blah. They think they're different wines. We
2: had uh, Mr. George Riedel in here.
1: Oh, yeah. In
2: the studio. And I tell you what, sitting across the table from him and, you know, just trying different glasses with wine and him explaining the finer details. I was mesmerized by that. In fact, if you want to hear that interview, just go to GrapeEncounters.com and in the search engine put in Riedel and you'll find it there but anyway David (laughs) Rosengarten my gosh I had a great time we could just sit and do this for hours and you know it's hard to do the food and wine thing over the phone but we pulled it off
1: we did okay man thanks to you you're good at this
2: (laughs) All right, well listen hey I really appreciate you being on so much great information so let's do a plug for David Rosengarten because you've got you know all kinds of cookbooks out there you have the newsletter where can people find more of you
1: yeah well I'm always online davidrosengarten.com it'll give you the whole universe and very important, based on what we did today, the import company is called Golden Ram. Two words, Golden Ram. And, you know, order our wines online. You can find them in stores in some states. And there's about maybe 75 different wines. You had just two of them today.
2: Yeah, and I can honestly say they were absolutely wonderful. Loved it. And loved having you on.
1: I really appreciate it.
2: And we will have you on very soon again.
1: Thank you, David. I look forward to it. All
2: right, uh, David Rosengarten. And uh, we will be back with more Grape & right after this. A lot of people ask me why Manzanita Manor's incredible Portuguese dessert wine is called Two Horse. Well, the reason behind the name is as extraordinary as the wine itself. It's because the owner and winemaker at Manzanita Manor Organics actually uses two beautiful horses to pull the plow on her farmland. When you take your very first sip of the Two Horse Vineyard's irresistible dessert wine, you'll immediately experience the winemaker's unparalleled connection to the land. It's what really makes it so good. You can purchase this exceptional wine online, as well as their purely delicious walnut oil, 100% organic heirloom walnuts, and free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts. Or you could visit their Honor Farm Stand 4.5 miles west of Paso Robles on Adelaide Road. To learn more about all the Manzanita Manor Organics products, visit MMOrganics.com. You can order all their walnut products there and bottles of two horse, of course.
3: For years, I seem to pour more wine down the drain than into my glass. I love great wine, but hate how quickly it goes bad. Now, for about the cost of a few good bottles, I pour as much as I want of whatever I want, whenever I want, with my Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com. Take a sip today, have a glass next month, and save the rest for a few years without removing the cork. Enjoy wine on your own terms with the remarkable Coravin from GrapeEncounters.com.
2: As a lifetime wine lover, I think I own practically every conceivable wine gizmo and gadget. Now I've put together a collection of some of my very favorite things so that you can take your wine obsession to the next level, just like me. From functional to pure fun, check out my favorite things by clicking the store banner at grapeencounters.com. That's grape, encounters, like closeencounters.com.
0: She's earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio.
2: Okay, and it is time for Sipping with Sarah, and Sarah, a couple of days ago I got into a heated conversation with a wine wholesaler over the very same question that I'm gonna to pose to you today. And I have no idea what position you're gonna take on this one.
4: And I don't know what the question is. <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
2: (laughs) You do, because you were prepped for this show, Sarah. (laughs)
4: Oh, right, right, right. where were you?
2: We should not drink wine before the show.
4: I know, something's wrong here.
2: Okay, the question came up in a conversation. We were actually talking about two-buck Chuck. Mm -hmm. You'd almost have to be dead not to know what two-buck Chuck is, because I guess Trader Joe's is all over the country now, right?
4: They are, they are.
2: Not everywhere, but so some people don't know. But even, I'm I'm imagining people who don't have a Trader Joe's have had somebody bring them a bottle of two-buck Chuck.
4: But you know it's not two bucks anymore. $2.49. Sense. I know. I bought some just a few weeks ago. Why? Um, <laughs> oh, that's a secret. <laughs> no. No, I, was, I bought it to do a blind tasting with with some more expensive wine. And Two Buck Chuck is, like you say, two forty nine dollars a bottle now.
2: Yeah. And we should uh, actually do an entire show on Two Buck Chuck because it's an interesting show. That and would this, be is fun. Actually, this actually is a nice lead-in to it, though, because the question that was posed in this impromptu conversation was when somebody loves their cheap bottle of wine, whatever it might be, two buck chuck, you know, white Zinfandel, whatever it is, do we want to convert them up to something that's a, a little better? And what I mean by that is this, is that the, there are a lot of people, obviously, that drink mass-produced wines, inexpensive wines, and a lot of people, especially the wine snobs, will poo-poo those people and belittle them for drinking inexpensive, you you know, mass produced wine. And so in this conversation, when somebody was talking to me about teaching wine appreciation and getting them to, you know, try better, more expensive things, I posed the question, why would you do that? Because the remember, we're talking about people who love these wines, okay? And it's different than people who say, I don't like red wine. Where are you on this, Sarah?
4: Well, there's so many questions embedded in that. Yeah, I okay, saw your wheels were yeah. just like turning uh, they smoke, are turning smoke I'm,
2: coming out of ears and nose and everything.
4: There's an assumption in there that um, a more expensive wine is a better wine. Um, that could be debated. Oh man, are you
2: opening up a can of worms I now? I know because there are a lot of issues here. There are a lot all right, of issues, go ahead.
4: but but we can keep it simple too. Whether,
2: when when have we ever done that?
4: <laughs> we go in all directions. Okay. I think. Um, but I think it's a huge question. It just came up for me a couple weeks ago, um, and I was leading a seminar. I was moderating a seminar that had a number of winemakers involved, um, and they were presenting their wines at all different price points, and one of them was in the low teens. And the audience, someone in the audience raised her hand, and she said, I want to understand here what's going on, because I tasted this $12 wine, and I absolutely love it. But she said, I don't really like this fifty-dollar wine, right? Um, and she said, "Am I wrong?" and and that was such a loaded question with wrong and right um, about. So, what's the answer then? Well, my my quick answer to her then, uh, before the more thoughtful winemakers jumped in, was that on the lower price end, there's wine that is just made to jump out at you with fruit, generous fruit, and say, "Drink me right now." Um, it's just made for pure instant enjoyment. And that's what it's trying to do. It's the wine equivalent of soda pop. There you go. Yeah, Yeah. And and it doesn't necessarily involve expensive wine growing or making, but then there's wine that's intended to make you think a little bit more. There are layers of interesting things underneath that don't necessarily immediately pop out. Um, And some people just aren't geared to respond to that or even get that, Um, but do they need to be? Do we need to push them there?
2: I liken it to going to the symphony. If you go to the symphony, you'll find different kinds of people there. You'll find the person who hears the oboe, they hear the cello, they hear the brass, they hear all of the different parts and then you have the people who hear the symphony. It's the finished product. You know, it's kind of, it, it, food's the same way. You know, do you taste the frosting separate of the cake, separate of the filling, or do you just taste cake? Either way is okay with me. <laughs> (laughs)
4: Those are good analogies. It doesn't matter.
2: I say this, that, you know, you can get into a lot of trouble if you develop a passion for really good and oftentimes expensive wine. And wine can eat up a lot of your household budget.
4: That's true.
2: Yeah. So why try to convert somebody to something that is going to end up costing them if you drink a bottle of wine every other night, let's say. Some people drink more than that.
4: Uh, No comment here. No,
2: no, no comment here. Okay. But if you try to convert them, and let's say it's a $35 bottle of wine, and they drink three of those a week, that adds that's, up. that's that's the cost of your insurance,
4: Oh, there's a your car payment,
2: right? It, it does is. add up really quickly.
4: But I, you know, I actually kind of believe, I don't kind of, I do believe that people will automatically, if they drink that wine they're appreciating right now, and then allow themselves to to dip into some elaborately made wines, I guess you could say. I think there's a little bit of a natural progression that you'll, you're, you're you'll so come. You swear, know, yeah. you, you start getting bored with this the very simple one note kind of one. But
2: you know, Sarah, that you've met tons of people who will tell you that you know what, I am happy with my Sutter Home White Zinfandel. I don't want anything else.
4: Sure, and I actually still think Sutter Home does the best White Zinfandel. They were the first, and I think they're still the best.
2: And, there, and there's nothing nothing wrong with White Zin. You know, if you like it, absolutely great. And they do Mm -hmm. a perfectly good job. It's just soda poppy to me. And that's okay because I I like a Pepsi or a Coke once in a while. And by the way, can't tell the difference. But I'm going to leave you with this thought. And I know you're going to jump on this one because this is your passion, Sarah Schneider. If you're happy with inexpensive wines, go exploring all the inexpensive wines out there because there's a gazillion of them. There are so many of them. And and it, it becomes fun for me to try to see what I can find for... Five or ten dollars.
4: I couldn't agree more. Um, there are gems among that, in that sea. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but not all inexpensive wine is created equal. And I drink an awful lot of cheap wine. It's it's part of my job. I mean, it's it's not hard. Out of a paper bag? <laughs> no, I do it proudly. Okay, all right. um, It's not hard to find a $60 bottle of good wine. It is hard to find an $8 bottle of good wine.
2: Moral of the story, drink what you like. Don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't like it out of principle.
4: Big yes to that.
2: Okay. So I say sign out and go drink some really expensive wine.
4: Big yes to that. (laughs) Okay.
2: That's going to do it for Grape Encounters Radio. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. It's not going to do it. We're
0: just going to do it again next week. I'm for that. Okay. Another yes. Your Grape Encounter isn't
4: over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.